You're listening to SkippyCast. I'm David McPhee. SkippyCast is a podcast about hobo-like travel, and welcome to the first program. And if you're thinking, I've heard that intro before, and you've been listening to podcasts since 2005, well, you probably have. It's Dennis Murphy's Polka by the band Tom Joad, and it was the intro used by Robert Butler throughout the duration of his show, Trailcast. For those unfamiliar, Bob Butler produced one of the first hiking podcasts, along with Bob Cartwright's backpackinglight.co.uk, which is now called The Outdoor Station, Steve Sargent's The Wildebeet, Bernie Wilde's Practical Backpacking, and to a lesser extent, Gary Middleholtz is doing stuff outdoors. Now, sadly, only the outdoor station is still active. Fortunately for us, you can still hear Bob Butler's 27 Trailcast episodes on archive.org, and I thoroughly recommend that you do. His brief was to do interviews with people connected to hiking, be it through gear or the hiking itself. And it's through Bob that I first learned and ruled about the Pacific Crest Trail, or the PCT. So what's Trailcast's connection with this show? Well, other than format, none really. Um, that wasn't always the case. Back in 2008, I wanted to start where Bob had left off. I even thought about sending him a message to see if he was up for it. But it was around this time that I took a job in the Everglades and I knew that I'd be far too busy, so I registered SkippyCast instead. And over the years, waiting for the time to get the project off the ground, I realised that my interests had varied. I didn't just think of through hiking anymore. Instead, I started to consider other journeys like long distance canoe trips, such as the Wilderness Waterway in Everglades National Park. And I realized it was the sense of unrestrained adventure that interested me, not the mode of travel so much. And here we are, 10 years later, my first episode, which I happened to record almost two years ago, starting a show where I talk about hobo like travel. Because that's what I like, unrestricted travel. Whether it's bike, boat, V-dub combi or on foot, I want to talk to modern day hobos. But first, who am I? I'd like to say I'm a hiker, but I'm not really. I'm not even a hobo. I am a wannabe hobo. I've had a taste and I want some more. I actually developed my love of travel and adventure early in life. I was in a plane at two, but that's not the reason. No, around five, I remember looking at a map on a friend's brother's desk. He was older and him explaining how he was going to travel the world. And then, when I was 12, I watched World Safari for the first time, a documentary about Albie Mangles and his six years' travel in the 1970s. And then in 1990, I spent four and a half years on sabbatical in the UK, before 1999, when I left Western Australia for good and came to the US for student exchange. So I come to my escape bug naturally, as I do the idea of hobo life. And in fact... I don't really think being a hobo is all that bad. I even told my mum once when I was 13 and we were eating in the Carillion Arcade in Perth that if I was a hobo, I would hang out here waiting for people to walk away from their half-eaten plates of Chinese food because at least I'd get a good meal. And if it were not for an unfortunate misadventure into marriage, I would have been a wandering spirit. Instead, I now live just by the Matanzas River in St. Augustine, Florida, taking care of my daughter on off weeks and trying to get back into environmental science. And of course, dreaming. In this interview, I talked to a friend of mine, Jodie McLean. Now, Jodie and I were at Edith Cowan University together in Jindalup, Western Australia, and uh, we lived in on-campus housing together. When I recorded this, Jodie had not long since finished her end-to-end trip on the Bibberman Track. Now, the Bibberman Track opened in 1979. It was the same year as Western Australia's 150th, 
and it is a long-distance hiking trail modelled on the AT that extends from Kalamunda, just south of Perth, to Albany in the state's southwest. And actually, during the show, I mentioned that the southwest region of Western Australia is a biodiversity hotspot. It actually was identified as one of 25 biodiversity hotspots for conservation priorities in the journal Nature back in 2000. And yes, I'm an environmental scientist, so that's kind of why I know. Anyway... I first heard about the bib track from another uni mate who was about to hike it in 1999 and I was just heading on student exchange to the US. I wasn't a hiker, well not since Boys Brigade and I didn't get the idea of 30 days on a trail. Now that was then and this is now and now I couldn't imagine anything more amazing because the bib track is amazing. So on to my conversation with Jody McLean. And welcome, Jody, and thank you for being my first guest on SkippyCast. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to talk to you. And uh, Jody McLean, I've already given you a bit of a background ahead of time, so we don't need to go into too much about that. Uh, you know from the brief of the show that I interview people who are hobos, and you've been doing a lot of that recently. Uh, so before we get into the weeds of the Bibbulmun track, what have you been up to? Well, about 12 months ago, I was um, at work, complaining about work, not having much to do. Um, I had previously asked for a redundancy and they decided not to give it to me. Um, but then things did change and um, I went on a six-week overseas trip. Um, I picked up some more volunteer work as a dog care at a local dog shelter. I went over to Bali for my cousin's wedding. I did some work around the house, the garden, generally enjoying life. And then I started, uh, well, even before then, started preparing for the uh, big bib track walk. Um, walk the track. I have um, done a bit of work on my cousin's farm and I'm currently back at home enjoying life, really. So that's the last 12 months in a nutshell? Pretty much. Now, you said that you were begging for redundancy. That's something that's unique of Australia because you don't hear many Americans begging for redundancy. I, I did think that. Um, basically, we have a, well, my company, it was a mining company that I was working for, and after nine and a half years, the redundancy package was uh, pretty generous, and I knew that if I got it, it would uh, set me up for a while. And I don't live a, um, well, I live a pretty simple life, so I don't spend a lot of money, so I knew it would keep me going. Uh, and, and I know a lot of people said to me, so redundancy happened in October, end of October last year, and I know that not many people would say it, but I was absolutely stoked. And uh, most people would say, oh, you know, I'm really sorry. And my response was, you know, hell, don't be. It's what, it's what I wanted. Yeah, that's how that came about. So that's where you got all your free time from? Absolutely, yeah. And you were just counting the days? Pretty much, yeah. I had a fair idea that it would, uh, would it, it would come at some stage. I just didn't know exactly when. Now, you've always had a love of travel. I mean, when we first uh, started talking, I mean, we were in that little microcosm that is Edith Cowan. Yes. And everybody was from somewhere else, and somebody was travelling, or somebody was travelling from somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. When you finished uni, you went off on a big trip then as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, I had my student exchange, and then I came back to uni to finish my degree. I'd done half half a year before I went on my exchange, which was a bit um, strange considering it was a high school exchange, but it was just the way the dates fell. And I came back, and I got through the rest of my degree, but probably in the last six months I decided I didn't really want to finish my degree but I did it because I'm a logical person and knew I was that close I should do it but the whole time at uni I knew that I was going to be heading overseas again um, to, to pick up the two-year working visa for the, for the UK. So is that how long you wanted for, for about two years? Yeah, well I had no choice because I um, don't have the, the beauty of ancestry visa. 
I um, would have got kicked out if I uh, didn't leave of my own accord. So coming back after that trip was really hard to settle back into into life. Oh, so it was a situation where you could have gone longer, not shorter? Um, no, I could only have gone two years and I went there for the max. No, no, what I was meaning is is that it was too short for you. Oh, I, I mean, there's a lot of people that go away from home and they get homesick and, you know, they're back before the two years. Oh, you could have no. just stayed out longer? Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Now, where have you been that's been super interesting? Because uh, you did a... Um, you did a countdown on Instagram, right? Yes. What, what yes. was that all about? Because that was, that was from the moment that you were made redundant in October, correct? Yes. So basically on my last day of work, I posted a, a pic on Instagram of uh, my empty office, kind of hashtag redundancy, hashtag woohoo. And um, the next day I was, um, I was gardening and it came to about noon and I was, found myself sitting on my, uh, under my patio having a glass of wine because that's what you do when you're semi-retired, which is kind of what I'm calling myself. And I just took a snap and then put up on Insta and, and just said, you know, day two, hashtag this, or sorry, day one, hashtag this is the life. And then the next day I was doing something and I just kind of, yeah, day two, and it just went from there. And I just decided oh, I'm just going to put on a put on an Insta photo every day and let's see how far it can go. So how far in advance did you plan? I mean, hobos generally just hop on the rails and go where the, the train takes them. How much planning did you do? Because you did a number of overseas trips, right? Because I didn't know when it was coming, um, I didn't have any time to plan. So as soon as I knew that, well, I mean, it was a day thing. As soon as I left the office, I was like, yep, yeah, I've got this money. I've got this time. I'm going to head overseas. So I went over to catch up with my Finnish host family, and they happened to be having Christmas in Portugal last year. So they um, were happy for me to go down there. So I actually had Christmas in Portugal last year, then went back to Finland and then uh, spent some time in England with my cousin. So, yeah, I mean, it was a matter of oh, weeks, really. But you've been in a lot of places. I mean, I, I always see uh, clips of you snowboarding in Japan. <laughs> or Yeah, look, I consider myself pretty lucky. I um, My first overseas trip was to New Zealand when I was 11. It was with my auntie's school, not even my own school. There, she asked my parents if I could go along and they were um, generous enough to find the money and, and let me go. Um, after that, it was my exchange, and then yeah, I guess over the years, it's um, yeah, I've been to Japan twice for snowboarding. Um, I did a three-month trip around Southeast Asia in 2012. I've had a few trips to Bali, as most uh, West Australians have, or Australians. Um, I've been to Nepal and India, um, but South Africa, yeah, and of course, I, I saw a lot of Western Europe when I was living in London for those two years. I mean, you being a country girl, where does this love of travel come from? Is it just that first trip to New Zealand? No, I think uh, no, I don't. I think I was a bit young to appreciate that, to be honest. It was definitely my my exchange to Finland. It was the people, and I was lucky while I was over there. I had an auntie living in in the UK at that time, so she was able to take me, um, you know, pay for me to go over to to her place. I spent two weeks there. I was able to go to a school trip to Germany. I uh, went over to Sweden on the boat, went into Russia. So, you know, it wasn't just Finland I got to see. I saw a couple of other places. But being an exchange student, you just meet so many people from so many countries. And I think that's just when I realised how much there was to see, just talking to other people. I think uh, almost all other travellers inspire me. What was it that led you to the path to Finland? Well, when I was 12 years old, my next-door neighbour, Deanne, went on a student exchange to Japan. And she was 17, I was 12, and she came back raving about it. And that for the next five years, I, I just knew that I wanted to go on exchange. And Finland itself was a, that was just random. Um, I think I actually requested Switzerland as my first choice. But yeah, I, I also was pretty flexible. And they came back and said, you're going to Finland. And at that stage, I don't think I'd even heard of Finland. 
um, yeah, I, I wanted to do it for, for the full five years of, of um, high school. And then actually when it came to year 12, my parents asked me, did I still want to go? And I said no. And they pushed and pushed and pushed until I told them the reason I didn't want to go was because I knew they didn't have the money to send me. Um, and they very generously said, look, we will find the money. So I have them to thank for that. Excellent. Let's zoom forward to the modern day. Yes. I think you were redundant for 157 days. Is that correct? At least according to Instagram before you did the bib track. Oh, I thought it was 109. But you know what? I haven't looked. I haven't, I haven't checked lately. It could be. It, <laughs> it could be my accounting. I've just messed it up. <laughs> Obviously, you did all these other trips and you went here and there and you went to Finland. Um, now, you're not a natural hiker. I don't ever remember you doing anything more than day hikes when we were at uni. What led you to the bib track? And, and give me a little bit of background about what the bib track is because it's not very well known outside of Western Australia. Yeah, sure. Well, they talk about the bib track being world class. Um, might not be well known, but it's, yeah, they say that it's world class. I can't speak personally because I'm a novice hiker. But they tell me compared to other tracks, it is. The facilities are amazing. Basically, the Bibliman track, or as you hear me say, it's the Bib um, or the Bib track. It's um, just over a thousand kilometres, and it stretches from Kalamunda, which is a suburb in the Perth Hills, down to Albany, which is actually close to where I grew up and, and a town where much of my family live now. I don't know how much history you want to know about it, but basically, I didn't know much about it myself, other than I had done um, some walks on it, some day walks on it before. And I found myself only probably a week after being made redundant, I was watching a movie called Wild. And I don't think it was a, a particularly great movie. It's the one with Reese with a spoon talking about the, the tale of Cheryl Strait. Yeah, the PCT one. Yeah, yeah, that one. And uh, of course, I've never heard of the PCT either. But I found myself watching it. And like, while I say it's not, I didn't think it was a great movie, I loved the story. And it just suddenly occurred to me that, well, I knew I didn't want to go back to work. Um, I operate by always having a goal. And so it was at that point that I decided, yep, I think I'm, at that page, stage I was about 90% sure that I was going to do it. I then went and spoke to a volunteer at the Bib Track Foundation. After that, I was probably about 98% sure I was going to do it. And then all that was holding me back was to go out and have a night on the track and stay at one of the shelters. And despite it being one of the worst nights sleep in my life because I chose to sleep on a yoga mat because I didn't have any gear by that, at that stage, um, I then decided, yeah, this is something I want to do. Um, like I said, it's a, it's a thousand k track, and if you look at it on a map of Australia, as you would know, Dave, it's uh, it's just a tiny section of Australia. But it did, yeah, it did take me a while. What was the longest you'd been out hiking before that one night? I mean, did you have a history from Girl Guides or anything like that? Or was it just, you just got the idea in your head? A lot of people do. A lot of people just get the idea in their head, I'm going to do a long distance trail, no experience. Yeah, that was me. There was some mountains, probably not mountains by American standards, or, um, but there were some mountains down where I grew up and, you know, I regularly, as a child, regularly went out and climbed Bluff Knoll, which was part of the Sterling Ranges. But yeah, that was, you know, a couple of hours. I had but all day hikes, uh, all day. I had participated in 2014. I did the Oxfam Trail Walker. I'm not sure if it's if it's in the states or not, but it, it does get held around around the world as a as a fundraiser for Oxfam, and that's a a 100 kilometre walk within 48 hours. So that was my biggest walk until the bibs. You say that you spoke to somebody who was at the Bib Track Foundation or something. Mm. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. 
up until that point, had you known anybody who had, in the States, a hike is the through hike, whereas in yeah. Australia we, we call it an end-to-end. Yeah. Had you known anybody who'd end-to-ended the bib track prior to? Just Kevin. Kevin, our mutual friend from uni days. I knew that he'd done it, and, yeah, he was the first person. I, I spoke to Kevin before I spoke to anyone at the Bib Foundation. Um, and he was, yeah, great help. Just to give a little bit of background, the Kevin that we're talking about is a fellow called Kevin McCormick. He was one of my environmental management buddies out at ECU. And when I was leaving to go on my exchange to the US, Kevin was about to do the bib track. And he said to me, hey, do you want to do this long distance trail? And up until that point, I didn't know anything about long distance trails. And I just said, you've got to be out of your mind. <laughs> the way he described it was 30 days walking. And I thought, uh, no, that's that's not for me. So to think of where I've come, I'm, I'm in the same place that you are now. It doesn't sound horrible. It doesn't just sound good. It sounds absolutely amazing. And I and I feel a little bit sad that I missed that opportunity. So you spoke to Kevin, though, about his trip on the Bib Track. Because he did his in, I think it was 99, right? Yeah, it was a, it was a while ago. Um, but I honestly, I watched this movie and I just... Like you said, it just got in my head, and then that was it. I couldn't st- I couldn't even sleep that night. I got onto the Bib Track website, signed up to be a member straight away. I flicked off an email to Kevin that night and just said, you know, I don't know if I'm crazy. I don't know if I'll wake up in the morning going, what the hell was I thinking? Um, but I just, yeah, it just really stuck in my mind, and that was what I was going to do. Um, and your reaction that you had to Kev all those years ago was exactly the reaction that I had from almost everyone. And the question was, why would you do that? And my answer was, why not? When you think about, um, I I think some of it comes from the older we get, the more stress we get and the more stressful life can be. It is somewhat of a a callback to a simpler life. Mm. Yeah. Now, what was it you say was the the main thing that crystallized? Why was it the, was it the challenge or was it the spiritual journey? A little bit of both, but I think mostly the challenge. I haven't always been one to follow through with things. So I just thought, no, nah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I plan, you know, just got stuck into the planning, um, the training, and, yeah, just decided, no, nah, that's it. And before I left, as you saw, I announced it on the Facebook and Instagram world. And once it's out there, there's no going back, and there's no way that I was going to admit defeat. So, you know, not... Oh, it's Facebook official by that stage. Absolutely, yeah. So not, you know, not finishing it never, you know, didn't cross my mind. Now, you just mentioned the prep process there. How long did you prepare for it? So what well, I decided I was going to do it, you know, 90% in um, November. Yeah, early November. I So I had it in my mind. I went and spoke to the guy at the um, Bid Foundation. Then I went overseas for six weeks. Really, it wasn't, I didn't really start planning until mid-January and a big part of the planning and, and um, preparation was getting the food ready for it because you're out there for – you mentioned Kev did it in 30 days. I, I did it in 54, so I chose to do it a bit slower. Um, and I had some rest days in there as well. But you've got to carry everything on you bar your water. So at the campsites, the water uh, – they have fresh water tanks, so you it's not the sort of hike where you – you know, you, you only ever have to carry as much water that you need in a day which is great. But yeah, getting the food prepared was a big thing. And I chose not to buy the pre-purchased packets of food. I decided mm-hmm. I had the, the time I'd prepare my own. So I actually found a book by an American guy. He calls himself Backpacker Chef Glenn. And I bought his, his online book and it was 
yeah, it was amazing. He, I had thought that I would go and make full meals and then dehydrate them, but mm-hmm. he showed me the way of, of dehydrating individual things and then kind of putting them together to create loads and loads of different meals. So that was a big part of it. There's a, an amazing Facebook group that is full of experts that have, that have done it. That was invaluable. Just, you know, you, you can ask any sort of question, and even though I'm sure many of them have been asked before, everyone's really helpful and, yeah, plenty of advice out there. Sometimes it was a bit too much. It got a bit overwhelming. You know, I asked about what sort of um, uh, pack that, you know, people recommended, and obviously everyone's got different opinions. But it was good just as a base to get that starting point. So, yeah, the prep was, um, was, was all about getting the gear, which, yeah, research my own and also using that Facebook group getting the food ready, you know, then as soon as possible I got some shoes, some new shoes that I um, started walking in pretty pretty quickly. The training wasn't, I didn't do a great deal of training, uh, which was one of my concerns when I first, when as I set off I was thinking two worries I had and one of them was about my fitness, not quite being up there. And then I did, a, uh, just the week before, I did a two-night trip on the track to make sure that all my gear was in order. And, yeah, that's probably the... The bulk of my oh, I'm doing um, training by walking on the track, but also doing you know some like a little weights program at home just to build build up my strength. But yeah, that was pretty the pretty much the bulk of the the um, prep. Now, did you get crazy about pack weight? The thing I noticed about when I first moved to the states, I um I did a few days on the track with Kevin back in I think it was 2001, mm. and I I had the pack from hell. It must have been it must have been 40 kilos if it was a kilo. Oh. I mean, it was a nightmare, and, and, and I felt it right through my feet. You know, my feet blistered badly, and I was only on for about three days. Oh. I'd never do it again, and when I got here, I learned all about the world of ultralight, yeah. and to the point where I would never hike in anything other than, let's say, Gore-Tex trail runners. Yeah. Um, did, you, did you get to the point of actually weighing your pack? Is, is that something that you knew ahead of time? Because it's normally a mistake people make when they get on the trail. The beauty of this Facebook group was that they could point out their their own errors, yeah, mistakes that they made in the past, but also a lot of them were long-time hikers and already had all the ultralight gear. So I, obviously I got the idea of ultralight, but I also thought, well, this is my first trip and I'm not going to invest all of that money in the ultra, ultralight stuff if this is going to be my only trip. So I was kind of, I went mid-range. I was told not to get too big a pack because you'd be tempted to, to fill it. Um, but I, I did end up with quite a big pack because I didn't want to play Tetris each morning trying to get all my gear back in my bag. Well, so what was your pack weight? Did you go to that level? I mean, oh, there, are, there are people here who cut off the ends of their toothbrush and <laughs> cut the tags out of their shirts. And... Yeah, no. I, I My scales actually wouldn't work the day that I left. So I think in my prep run, it was sitting at about 16 kilos. So 16 kilos, yeah. so about 40 pounds. Yeah. Something like that, I think. Anybody listening to this can do the conversion. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm in a non-metric country and... Uh, yeah, I can't I help. I can't go, help you out with pounds and miles. I have to, I have to go back to the old days. <laughs> but you were saying that you had to carry all your own meals. What was the longest stretch you had? Because you must have resupplied on the trail. Because yeah, it's yeah. 56 days, you had to resupply. Did you do like what they call here a bounce box and let's say mail it ahead somewhere? Yeah. Or yeah. did you... You did that? Yeah. I was, okay. Sorry, go no, I was just going to ask you how many bounce boxes you made. I was a bit spoilt because of the support I had. Um, so along the big track is about seven track towns. And the first one was dwelling up and someone met me there with a resupply box or a bounce box. The only one that I actually posted was down to a town called Collie. So 
just one was was posted, but all the others, I was either staying with someone I knew and I had I had visited them ahead of time and, and left things with them. Um, when I got further south, I had my family there that were able to, to meet me at some of the track towns and, and give me things that I had already provided them some months before or weeks before. So, yeah, I was really lucky in that way. I also had um, a friend come out and stay the night with me for one of my rest days. Um, so I had a lot of support along the way. Now, you talked a little bit about the trails. If I remember correctly, the, the Bibman track was actually based on the AT. The idea for the Bib track came from the AT, and that's why we have shelters on the Bib track. And yeah. the shelters, for, for anybody who doesn't know, get out there online, have a look at the shelters on the Bib track because they're like the Rolls-Royce of shelters. They're the best shelters I've ever seen on any trail anywhere. And certainly they haven't had the, the usage that the ones on the AT have had. Uh, did you, one, find them um, crowded? Because I don't remember them being particularly crowded. And did you carry a tent? No and yes. So, no, they weren't crowded at all. I had more than uh, 50% of my time out on the track was I had the shelters to myself. And I did carry a tent for part of it. I knew ahead of time that some of the shelters, so, so you know, the bushfires that we get over here, um, there was three campsites that had been destroyed and they hadn't yet finished completing the, the new structures. So um, it, you had no choice. You, were, you, you either walked several through several campsites, which made for a really long day, or you just set up in, in your tent for the night. I carried, I, I had it there because I thought that, also, I thought that there'd be a lot more mosquitoes, and I had planned to camp inside my tent, but in the shelter. But I found that there was no problem because of the time of year I did it in April, May. There was no problem with mosquitoes, and I much preferred to be outside of the tent in the fresh air. Now, you mentioned the time of year that you travel. When did you leave? You left June 23rd, is that right? No, no, it was um, April, April 7. Okay, because if I remember correctly, when I was thinking about doing the bib track, they tell you to do it obviously in winter because of water. <laughs> There's no way that I'd do it in winter. When I think of winter and I think of Western Australia, I only think of two seasons, hot and wet. Okay, so you started in April, which is, you know, after the hot, hot of, uh, of February. You're going into the, the cooler side of the months. Um, was that a recommendation that you got from people over at the Bib Track? I mean, do they do they give you an ideal time to start? Yeah, absolutely. They, they say if you're going to do – I went against their advice. They say if you're going to do north to south, that it's best to go in our springs. And if you're going to go south to north, then do it in – have I got that right? Yeah, do it, do it in autumn. And it's all related to the, the, the weather, related to the amount of water. But I just had it said in my mind that I wanted to go from north to south and I didn't want to wait until towards the end of the year. And I wanted to finish in the town where my family and supporters were. So that's the way I did it. Do most people do north to south? Um, do you know a lot of, I, I think it's hard to know because obviously when you're walking, you've got people in front of you and, and, um, and behind you that you never get to meet because you're heading the same way. But I think people that come from out of town will often start south and head north because they want to finish in Perth because that's their departure point. And I did pass quite a few people that were heading heading north. Uh, do, you, do you know which way Kevin did it? I just had it in my head that people went uh, north to south. Because they always talk about the terminus as being in Albany. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well, they they talk they have a northern terminus and a southern terminus. Um, and I'm pretty sure Kev went north to south, yeah. I think maybe things have changed a little bit. Typically, you know, when you talk about hiking in the US, uh, you know, there's, there's always a set path that maybe 
you know, 80% of people go. Mm. And I would have thought that that would have been the same way, but maybe things have flip-flopped. I mean, I haven't been on the bib track in 16 years, so... I mean, yeah, who knows? I, I think it's personal choice as well. I spoke to, I crossed paths with a lady that I'd been in contact with during, uh, through the Facebook group, and she said that she wasn't interested in the coastal scene, so she wanted to get that out of the way, and that is to go south to north. So she wanted to get that done and then head into the forest. Wow, what was wrong with her? <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, honestly, the, the track is amazing because it's got, the, you know, you know, it's got the three separate kind of three very distinct areas. So you start off in the Jarrah Forest and then head into the Marion and Tingle. And then when you get down and you see the, the, the coastline for the first time, it's just an amazing feeling. If I remember correctly, as you get towards the coast, you go, you start to get smaller trees and you go into the Banksia woodland and then you get down into the actual, you know, the, the sand. Because yeah. you do walk on the sand for some period of time, don't you? Yeah, 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 several times. Um, yeah, I mean, there's up to, I think, the longest stretch of a beach is 7K. Wow. Mm. Okay, now, I'm going to go back to my questions here. Now, you did it solo. Yes. Did you do it solo for the same reason that Kevin did it solo, that everybody thought he was crazy? <laughs> that's my number one reason. Um, yeah, definitely. That's uh, Well, that's one reason. Second reason, I would say, is that no one had the freedom that I had. There was no one else that could take, you know, almost eight weeks off work, off kids, and all of that stuff to do it. But mostly it's because I wanted to. I didn't want to do. There's not. There's two people that I would have considered doing the whole track with, and uh, one of those people came and joined me for part of it. But otherwise, I was happy to be by myself. I wanted that time. Now, did you meet many people on the track? You say you met a woman that didn't want to do the beaches, but is, was there anybody else? Yeah. Look, I came across. Oh, I was keeping a tally of various things along the way. Um, I think I came across around about 70 people. Some of those, you know, would were day trippers, some were doing just an overnight trip or two, or a weekend trip. Yeah, a lot of them were, you know, just passing, and then I spent the night in shelters with some people. The AT and the, and the Bib Track have a lot in common in terms of how close they are to a lot of towns along the way, and a lot of people do skip onto the track and do a day or two. I mean, I did three days from Jarradale downwards, I think it was. Mm -hmm. You know, the southwest is, you know, huge in terms of its tourism. I think when we did it, we came across a, a bunch of guys who were Vietnam vets, but it's not like it is here. It's not where um, to do the AT is a rite of passage. To do the bib track isn't really a rite of passage, though, is it? I don't think so, no. I, I mean, the, a, the AT is just so, so, so long and so difficult. The bib track, you know, it's, well, it's short in, compared to what, what you guys have. And it's not, a, I don't consider it a difficult, not, not that I've done any other, but I, I think that it's not a difficult track. It's not very rocky from what I can remember. And it's not, we don't have the huge variation in, in, in altitude in Western yeah, Australia. It's, right. It is very much a foot in front of the other. And like you said, you can forego a tent if you plan it correctly. As long as you know where, you know, we do have a lot of bushfires. So as long as the place hasn't been burnt out, you can kind of survive without carrying you know, multiple days of water and, and certainly heavy packs and, yep. and, and camping gear. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what did you find was the most difficult part of the track? I did not enjoy the rain. Luckily, it didn't happen very often, but walking in the rain, it just it got me down. There was one particular day where it was I was on top of Conspicuous Cliff, which is right uh, in the south um, on the coast, and the wind and the, then the hail started, and I was just, like, you know, head down. And at one point, when I... At one point, when I looked down and saw that it was hailing, I actually yelled at the top of my lungs, you've got to be effing kidding me. I just hated being wet and then having to, and getting to the shelter and being chilled to the bone. And, you know, if it's 
if it's pouring with rain, no chance of a fire, you know, building a fire in one of the fire pits and just you can't get your clothes dry. And your shoes, I mean, once they're wet, they stay wet for days. See, that's unusual as well because we have fire pits along the boob track, which in Western Australia, for the majority of summer, we're in a fire ban. Yes. You can't have an open <laughs> fire. So did you carry a cook stove? Yes, I carried an awesome little stove that was, yeah, just came with one, two little pots, and heated things up really quickly. It was about 60 bucks from a camping store and it was gold. So obviously you could have a hot meal every night. Yeah, and so because of all the prep I'd done with my food making, I carried my dehydrated meals for the evenings. Um, they were all labelled with what they were, and I just put it into, into water for about half an hour, you know, while I set up camp and, and wrote in my diary or did a bit of yoga. And, yeah, then next thing I could put it on my little gas cooker and it was done. It was warm in a couple of minutes. And how many miles a day were you doing, typically? Um, did you, like, hit every shelter or did you skip some? Nah, nah, definitely skipped some. Um, in the northern section, so from Perth to Kalamunda, the first um, roughly 120 kilometres, no, a bit more than that, the shelters are very close together. And they've done it that way because... Um, so many people from the city go out and do the overnighters or the weekender. And so they're about 10 kilometres apart. And to do 10 k's a day is, you know, it's just you'd be, you'd be there in a couple of hours and then you'd have the rest of the day. So I was generally doing about 20 k's. And quite often I'd be into the shelter, into the campsite by mid-afternoon. Uh, I think my longest day was about 37 kilometres, and I did that in order to bypass one of the campsites that had burnt down. See, because a lot of the people, when they do, I mean, the AT is obviously a lot longer, so that the, you know, if you're going to do five months, you know, people have to keep to a strict regime. When you're only doing something that could potentially take you 30 days, and obviously you had a bit more free time, you can take that leisurely trip. You can, I mean, it does become the journey and not the destination. Yeah. I came across two. One was going uh, the opposite direction to me and he was striding out. Most people stopped and chatted because you're out there for a long time by yourself and if you see someone out, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere, you like to stop and have a chat. And I passed this guy and he was just had the longest legs and he was just gunning it. And I found out later from other people that he was trying to do the track in 20 days and that is a, a massive effort. Um, that's kind of 55 to 60 k's a day. And then uh, the ice, sorry, I caught, um, another two guys from Singapore, I think they were, they were coming after me and they caught up to me. My day 40 was their day 15. They were also doing it in 20 days. It's not unusual for people to want to do it in 30 days because, I mean, unlike in the US where, you know, vacation time or, or holidays, as we would call them, is typically about two weeks long. Mm. In Australia, it's normal to get four to five. Yeah. So wanting to do it in 30 days is, you know, that's your annual vacation. You can you can get it done there and there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I understand that, and I understand wanting to keep to that time schedule. But wanting to do it in uh, in 20 days, to me, there's just too much to see. Yeah. I mean, and they were – the day I met the guys from Singapore, it was – well, it was – I was already in my swag. They came in probably well, – the first one came in, I think, about seven. And I, um, I wasn't actually sleeping. I was just reading my book. And, and he came in and, and we had a great chat. And then he said that his walking companion was still coming. And I fell asleep and I recall he got in about 10.30. And then they were gone when I woke up. And they were gone well before I woke up. So they were just, it was all about, yeah, just getting it done. There was no enjoyment as far as I could see. 
Now, did you have the food mood? That's another thing they talk about here. Did you did you really enjoy the food that you'd prepared in advance, or were you looking forward to getting into the towns? Do you know, I actually really liked the food I made, and I, <laughs> to, to the point that I've got some left over, and I've only done it twice, but it's in the pantry, and I have actually had no food in the house. I've actually pulled one out and, and rehydrated it and eaten it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not going to go off, is it? Oh, no, it's, it's backpacked and, and well dehydrated, but I think people think that I'm crazy for doing that. But, you know, yeah, I, I quite liked it. Yes, you know, the big thing for me was chocolate. The, the minute I got off the track, I was like, yeah, just give me chocolate. <laughs> now, so you didn't take any on the track? Ke- oh. Kevin said when he hiked it, he said people usually lo- you know, lose a certain amount of weight because it's, it's not unusual, especially if you're doing about 30 miles a day, to lose about 7,000 calories a day. And a lot of people, especially when they hike here, they eat Snickers bars not because they enjoy them. They, they take them like a pill. Yeah, sure. Did, did, you, did you constantly eat to keep your calories up or was it just – you would have gained weight? Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't gain weight, but I have heard that some people do gain weight. I did lose a couple of kilos, nothing extreme. I think Kev said he lost about seven kilos. Um, I think because I took my time doing it, I was quite yeah, – I fed myself well when I was in the track towns having a rest day. I did take some chocolate on the track, but the thing with me and chocolate is that if I have it, I'll eat it. So I pretty much eat, you know, ate it in the first couple of days and then went the next little bit without any. <laughs> See, this is why you need to do a long-distance trap here. You can do that feast and famine, you know, because you go, you go so often where you, you – know, you know, the, the, the distances between you resupply, the, and it's so hard that you can literally stuff your face. I think, I think that's what the thing that appeals to me the most about it. It's not just the scenery. It's the idea that you can binge and bust. <laughs> yeah. What was the thing that you enjoyed the most about the train? Um, I, being out there alone, just, yeah. The solitude? Absolutely, the solitude. It was it, it's funny when I would get to a campsite, I'd, I'd play this little game with me about would there be other people there and would there be toilet paper in the toilet? So I oh, it's a long drop as well. That's another thing. You don't have to dig a hole. No, sorry. I didn't actually get to mention the setup of, of the campsite. So you've got the three, three-sided shelter. You've got a fire pit at, in, most, in the northern half. Uh, you've got some picnic tables. You've got the water tank sometimes two water tanks and you've got the long drop toilet which is a it's a luxury i mean it's it's it, it is not cowboy camping nah. this is some serious luxury when you compare it to some of the trails that you do here yeah i can imagine provided you can go the entire day without having to spend a penny you're you're golden when you get into campsite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i would get the camp and i i if there was someone there, it always turned out nice. You know, it always turned out fine. It was lovely to talk to people. But, yeah, it was also lovely to turn up to an empty campsite and not have anyone show up and just to, to set up, to lay in bed alone, to wake up in the morning and just be, you know, not that you're out in the middle of nowhere on this track, but just the, the silence um, or, you know, all the noise, depending on what's going on, whether, you know, the animals and, and that sort of thing. I just loved it. There was many times where I just, yeah, Thanked my lucky stars as I lay in bed and just really enjoyed being there. The serenity of it. Yes. Yep. How's the serenity? Now, what, what was your favourite part? I mean, because you talked about the different zones. I mean, the the carry to the marry to the. I think you go through the the Xanthoria pressi, the um, the grass trees, and into the coastal areas. Which was your favourite part? Definitely the section from Donnelly River down to Pemberton. Um, it was going through the awesome marry forest, and mm-hmm. it just it was it was. It was challenging. It was um, 
it, it was very um, undulating, I should say. There's a part of it they call the Donnelly River roller coaster because it's just k's and k's and k's of 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 ups and downs and ups and downs. And I think the reason I liked that part so much was also because I had my best friend join me for five days, and yeah, it was just a lot of fun. But it was also just a beautiful, beautiful part of the track. And at that point, the shelters changed. If anyone looks at photos on the website, there's basically the northern half of the track has shelters with a bunk bed set up. And the lower ones have like this big L shape. They're just they're just better set up, and and the just the surroundings of the campsite, you know, the massive trees, and some of them were alongside a brook, and it was just beautiful. Uh, now you said that you obviously you had a friend, and you and you you had your friends have your your resupply as you went along the track. Did you ever just have nights alone in town, or were you always staying with somebody? I mean, one of the big things about, you know, hiking, certainly long-distance hiking here, and I, and I hate to keep on comparing it back and forth, but the compare and contrast is always in my mind. Mm. You know, one of the things about travelling here is, certainly on the AT, is about the, the communication and the camaraderie and then getting into town and basically people let their hair down a little bit. Did you have any of that? Did you, let's say, get into town and then stay at a backpackers or something like that? Or was it always staying with friends because you were so close to friends? I yeah I'm just thinking I don't I didn't have any in the in the trap towns I always had some I always had company I don't think it's because the distance between the trap towns is not huge I don't think you get the same um, sort of um, reaction when you get into a town like you do like you're talking about on the AT um, and just yeah just, or just reading Cheryl Strade's book I read that as well as watching the movie and it just seems like it's such a challenge to go between the towns that yeah when you do get into them you are really really grateful to be there whereas on the bibs i know people that bypass the towns altogether they'll leave, they'll just go straight through them the volume of people that hike is fairly small so it's not the same i don't think it's the same atmosphere anyway i mean for the way you described it you said you saw 70 people i mean i, I would be surprised if there were 50 people in a season the end to end the bib track I mean, I don't know what the stats are. I could look it up, and I'll probably put it in the show notes. But, you know, you're not going to get into town and have a bunch of people that you go, wow, we just, you know, we we, we endured that, now let's party. Yeah, you definitely don't, no. Now, I mean, one of the things I liked, I mean, we started in Pemberton, and there are things to see along the track. You know, you did some of the, um, what's the name of it? The Gloucester Tree? The Fire Towers, yes, the Gloucester Tree. Yeah, I think definitely for... Because of, of growing up down that way, I've done lots of things in the southwest corner. So the Gloucester tree was something I wanted to do in particular because it's directly on the track. And Would you want to describe it? So, so I mean, either that, you or me. You go. Well, I mean, there is a series of four fire trees down in the southwest where they've hammered poles into the side of they're the tallest tree in the forest. And they used to use them as fire lookouts. The Gloucester tree being one of it, I think it's 63 metres high yeah. from memory. I think it's one of the smaller ones, actually, but it was a genuine fire lookout, whereas some of the, like, the bicentennial tree was just created for the bicentennial. Now, you did that when you were down there, so describe to me you getting up the, the Gloucester tree, because it, it's a little bit hairy, isn't it? It's very hairy, and I realised when I was there that it was all, it was pretty much exactly 20 years ago that I'd done it, and um, I think it's true what they say about the older you get, the more you fear heights, because it was really 
hairy for me and and um, getting to the top was, was uh, quite a mission. And I got down and I realised how hard I had been holding onto the pegs that were in the side of the tree because I'd almost taken skin off. Um, but it was, yeah, it was nice. And, and I met some really nice people there that questioned why I was, you know, carrying this massive backpack. Um, and it was one of the, um, well, yeah, it was a great memory because I got to have a fabulous conversation with some people from uh, Adelaide. And they were travelling and, yeah, they were thinking, they actually said, oh, you know, you're amazing, you're an inspiration. And I don't agree with them, but it was, it was nice to talk to them. Did you say, well, I, I prefer the term hero? <laughs> I mean... Uh, I didn't, I missed that opportunity. Because the, the Gloucester tree, I mean, it is a highlight for me down the southwest, as is the treetop walk. But I think the treetop walk's a little bit far from the bib track, right? No, it goes right past it. Oh, really? So mm-hmm. you can even do the treetop walk, which yeah. is, it, yeah. it goes through, it, that goes through Tingle or... or what, what trees did they go through? Carrie? Um, it's a glass. It's a glass walkway yeah. through the, the canopy of the trees. Just yeah. to explain that. Yeah. yeah. But the the thing about the Gloucester tree is they're just iron bars connected by um, uh, wire, and if you meet somebody coming down, <laughs> the, the thing is, we you going up because being in Australia, you have to go on the left hand side, so you don't have anything to hold on to, so you basically hug the tree. <laughs> That's right. And, Do you and remember that? Absolutely. And I mean, the day that that I walked it just recently, there was I think I only had to pass one person. But thinking back to you know, 20 years ago, I do recall having to pass quite a few people. And I was amazed, given how much the world has been overtaken by you know, occupational health and safety. When I got there, I was half expecting to either see that it wasn't open anymore or that it, had, that it, that it was completely enclosed by, by a cage. Uh, but it is still exactly the same as it was. They may have done some reinforcing of the pegs. Um, but the fact that it is completely open until you get to about 50 metres um, astounds me. I mean, it's fabulous. I, I'm so happy that they haven't um, that they haven't enclosed it, but it's, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if they had. I thought the same thing, and I, and I did all four on one trip down to the southwest back in 2000, so if somebody had told me that it was enclosed now, I think I would have cried. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, want, I want to get to the wildlife as well because... One of the things I like particularly about the Southwest, it's actually registered as one of the biodiversity hotspots by um, uh, whatever World Fund or whatever it is. I'll insert later. But when you're down, particularly at the um, at the, uh, the Gloucester tree, it's a well-known place for rosella. And if I remember correctly, they'll actually fly into your hand and you can feed them. Did you yeah, come across that? Yeah, I didn't come across that, but I know what you're talking about because, again, I remember that from, from – a trip that I did with family 20 years ago, but no, I didn't actually see it this time around. So what, what was the wildlife like? I mean, you've got a count here, I can see from your Facebook page, <laughs> that you saw 124 kangaroos. Now, is, is this an exact stat, or is this something you were collecting for a thesis? <laughs> I, at the end of the day, I would write in the back of my journal exactly what I'd seen that day. So there was times when there was a huge mob of kangaroos, and I may have missed one or two, but yeah, it was pretty accurate. Really, including the 76 stick snakes. I'm All not right. familiar with those. Are they poisonous? Uh, I may have made that one up. So <laughs> that, that, was, that was an exaggeration. But have you ever seen a stick snake in the bush? Well, the thing is I don't hang around to actually verify. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the crocodile hunter. The, the, no, the number of times that I gave myself such a fright uh, because I thought it was a snake. Um, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't count them, so I just came up with seventy-six. I was walking a section, uh, a, a trail up by um, Lake Joondalup. This is years ago when I was in my teens, and I came across a snake, and I just remember it was multicoloured. And you know, my knowledge of 
you know, biology back then was fairly limited. But I spent the next 30 minutes getting out of there going, <laughs> no, snaky, snaky, no, snaky, snaky, no. <laughs> That's an aside. But what about the, what about the bird life? Because, I mean, I could tell people about it, but I'd rather it hit your company your mouth. Look, the black cockatoos were spectacular. They, um, they talk at the moment there that they are um, very low in numbers. And then if you see black cockatoos, they encourage you to report them to the black cockatoo kind of reporting line, like there's a phone number set up for sightings. And I find this quite amazing because down on the track, there was just thousands of them. It was um, beautiful to see. Well, there are different types as well. I mean, there are, um, there's the yellow crested, red crested, and there's a white crest. I don't know what they, they come down in terms of their species name. Mm. For people that aren't familiar, black cockatoo is all black with the exception of one flash of colour. And that can yeah. either be uh, white, yellow or red. And I can't remember how they break down in terms of their rarity. These ones, a lot of these ones were were red on the tail. So, you know, just when they were stationary in the tree, you couldn't really tell. But when they took off, they were stunning to see that, that, that splash of colour under their tail. That's right. I think it is in the tail. I, I, I keep wanting to say it's on the breast, but it's been such a long time for me. Mm. Now, you said you saw 124 car- kangaroos and 11 wallabies. How do you tell the difference? Wallab- Did you ask them? <laughs> Wallabies, are, they seem to be a lot uh, more skittish than the kangaroos. The wallabies are smaller. They have a slightly different face and they have a stripe down their face heading over there at the top of the crown of their head. Now, people who have visions of Western Australia, well, Australia in general, they have these visions of the big, um, the big red kangaroos. And obviously we don't have that. We have the Western greys, which are much smaller. Yeah. And, and, and the kangaroos down the southwest are everywhere, particularly at dusk. Yeah. But fortunately, you weren't driving a car, so you didn't have to worry about hitting them. <laughs> That's right. When you were coming to the end of your track, I mean, you said it was as much a spiritual journey as anything. Um, how did you feel as you were starting to get closer to the end? I, um, I was starting to panic a little bit. Not panic so much, but I was, I was getting a bit nervous. I didn't want it to end. Um, at no point during the walk did I want it to be over. There was days when I wanted the day to be over because it was a particularly tedious part of the track. You know, there's one section where it's just nine kilometres of sandy road, um, very uninspiring. There was days when my feet were, you know, aching. So I wanted certain days to be over, but I never wanted the, the trip to be over. And because I had put so much, I guess it wasn't really, you know, it's not like I'd been planning it for years, but for the period that I was planning I had put a lot of effort in you know with the with the food and the research and um, you know the fitness and and things in general and and I was lost when I finished. Do you think you suffered a little bit of the um, they say when you finish a long distance trail that there's a a little bit of depression that kicks in I mean I'm not saying that you you need meds but did you, you kind of go through that that huge yeah absolutely absolutely yeah for sure I i um, I didn't get that feeling of accomplishment or elation or or pride that I was told that I'd get. Um, and to this day, I still don't really think it's such a big deal. Like, I, I'm a sensible person, so I know that not everyone would could do what I did. But I, yeah, I, I've, I've done it and I'm glad I did it, but it doesn't feel like such a big deal. I'm just a girl that went for a walk. Was it everything that you expected it would be? Do you know, I actually went with very little expectation. I think a lot of people thought that I was going to be trying to find my purpose or my direction or uh, even the meaning of life. But I, I went out there just thinking it'll be what it'll be. 
So I guess in that regard, that yeah, it did meet my expectations. Um, I think I probably expected it to be harder than what it was. I think mm. I think um, because I had I mentioned I had the worry of um, you know would I be able to do it fitness wise? I guess the only, the other worry I had was would I mentally be able to cope being by myself for that long? And there, yeah, that was not an issue at all. Yeah, well, I understand that you like talking to yourself anyway. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Hey, I live alone. I've got no choice. But so you didn't really have an expectation, and they do say that the worst day on the trail is still the best day in the city. Yeah, that's it, right? I, I think what I need to do is get is to get back out there. I know people. I can see on the Facebook group that um, you know people that were on there the same time as me. They've been back out there many times, and it's quite common. You read in the books that are at the at a, at each campsite that about people that have done the end-to-end and then they come back within weeks because they miss it so much. I haven't actually been out there again, um, and I need to, for sure. Oh, I didn't even think of that question. I'm glad that you answered it. <laughs> now, what about the tech? Because when I did it with Kev, and I did a, I did it for ecotourism when I was at uni, obviously not end-to-end, just mm. a, a few days. The day that I did for ecotourism, we got soaked to the point where um, water was flooding our tents. Mm. So... Uh, yeah, that wasn't particularly brilliant, and, uh, but it was still great, and it still made me want to hike. In fact, because that was once I came back to Australia after being in America, so it was long after the time that I'd originally spoken to Kevin. Mm. We, we didn't have any technology on the trail. I mean, the, the you know, if you were wanting to communicate with the outside world, you had to go into town and use a phone. Mm. I assume you took your smartphone, right? I did. And, you know, I think that doing it without tech would be – I think that would be better. I thought I, I – I was kind of looking forward to not having the mobile coverage just to get away from all of that as well. But yeah, I had my I had my smartphone with me. I and I also carried a personal locator beacon just in case there was any real emergency where I needed to be rescued. You doubled up your phone for photos as well. I didn't because um, my phone was it had crap battery, so oh yeah, the battery would have run low too fast. So, I, uh, yeah, sorry, I, did, I carried my digi camera as well. Because I, I did read here, it says, I'm creating a hard copy book and DVD with video. <laughs> I used my, my camera to do these little daily um, video diaries. And I've, I was watching back some of them a, a couple of weeks ago with a, with a girlfriend. And, oh, gosh, it was hilarious. So I, I, I want to put them together um, and, and include some stills as well. And when I finished the track, I was all, you know, yep, yeah, I got into it straight away and I spent a week down in Albany at my parents' house and I, I worked on it quite a bit. I haven't even looked at it since I've been back. And I think having this chat with you has inspired me to get back to it. But, yeah, I want to put the video together and then I want to, I'll want i do a hard copy, you know, photo book that you just put together on the on the internet and send it away to a printer and they send it to you. When I did it with Kev, I mean, um, I was with Kev and a friend of mine, Rob Record. I took my, my Sony camera and they thought I was nuts and I had spare batteries <laughs> and, and I took my video, my video camera mm. in addition to my film camera. Wow. And I had like six tapes or something stupid like that. In addition to the, um, the sleeping bag that was... It, 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 even if you'd been car camping, it was too heavy. <laughs> no wonder your pack weighed 40 kilos. Oh, you should see a picture of me. I had like a front a front day pack. And I was I was finely tuned, I say, but I was certainly overweight. <laughs> but I took that video camera with me and I actually shot about two hours of film, yeah. uh, which is a lot when you consider we were only there for three days. And for the last for the last 16 years, I've been thinking about putting that together into a film. <laughs> Oh, we, I mean, I, perhaps I need to get your help to do it. I, I did start and um, I put the first 11 days into a, a little package and 
buggered if I could get the um, size of it down so that when I saved it, it ended up being a huge number of um, of gigabytes. So, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I think you just missed the last bit of what I said. I've been waiting 16 years to do mine. So <laughs> no, if you've got 16 years for me to do yours, then we, at some stage when we reach retirement, well, you're already semi-retired, but yeah, no, I'll, I'll help you. Get, get in touch with me later on. <laughs> so I, I do expect to see a video or I expect to see something that I can link in the show notes. And certainly I hope you can send me some pictures. I can do that. But what's your next big adventure? Where are you going? It's a good one, David. I'm heading to the States and Canada for the first time ever. That will bring me up to 36 countries for my 38 years. So when I was actually in Finland, or I was with my Finnish host family, and um, it was at Christmas time last year. One of them asked, you know, how many countries have you been to? And I, I didn't know, so I, I made a list. And I was like, oh, at that stage it was 34. Well, currently it's 34. And I thought, oh, I think I'd like to visit a country. I'm, I want to have my tally of countries to equal my age. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not far off. But anyway, I digress. I'm, um, I'm heading to the States on the 22nd of December heading into New York City for Christmas and a few days there. And, yeah, just got a couple of road trips planned um, and we've got eight weeks over there. So heading there with my best friend, Emma. The thing about going to the States, though, unfortunately, is it's so huge for just one. Yeah. You know, it's not like you can go to Europe and knock five yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's not value for money. <laughs> no, it's not if you're aiming towards collecting countries as you go, but you could collect states, and that's what I do. I collect the states as I go. So there's, there's 50 states, so you need to check off the states as you go along. Okay, I can do that. I think you'll probably win that competition, though. What, for states travel? Yeah. Well, you beat me in countries, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm not getting any younger, and I'm not clicking off any more countries as I go, so... <laughs> Okay, now before I quickly end this, uh, Jody, because we've well, we've been talking for a while. Um, have you got a Twitter handle or an Instagram that I can put in the show notes so people can contact you if they choose to? Uh, I mean, I don't want to create you a, a long list of stalkers, but are you are you okay handing something out if somebody wants to ask you a question? Yeah, I've never got into the Twitter thing, but I do certainly have an Instagram profile. Okay, uh, is it public or do you have some public? Um, I don't have it public. I could make it public. At least make some of it. If you could make some of the bib track photos, and I'll share them through uh, the website when I get this up. Yep, sure. Okay, well, Jody, look, thanks. Thanks very much for, for talking to me and explaining your, your trip on the bib track. I hope this podcast comes out as well as the conversation seemed to me. But then again, I always enjoy talking to you. <laughs> it's been good, Dave. I'm, uh, oh, yeah, makes me happy to talk about it. Okay, well, when I get it up there, I'll share it with you. Awesome. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this program of Skippy Cast. Thanks to Jodie McLean for taking the time to talk about the Bibberman track and her other adventures. Check out the show notes at skippycast.org for a link to a couple of Jodie's pictures as well as a link to the Bibberman track foundation. And if you want to leave a comment for me or Jodes, feel free to do it at the website or at the Skippy Cast Facebook page. I'd certainly love any feedback, positive or negative, because while the show's for me, it also has to be something that other people want to listen to as well. Now, the next episode's already in the bag, or at least the interview portion is, but it's not really about hobo life. I also run a Facebook group that pays homage to the PBS show Trailside, and I was fortunate enough to speak to Nan Mandez about her time on the show as an executive producer. 
So expect me to occasionally deviate somewhat from my brief as I interview people that really interest me. After that, who knows? I have some ideas, hopefully you do too, and you'll share with me in the Facebook group. One of mine is to bring back Bob Butler and to talk about his time producing Trailcast. Him and I have already spoken and he was keen, so it would be nice to make that happen. Again, not hobo-related, but something people who remember Trailcast will get a kick out of. And finally, special thanks to the band Tom Joad and Kelly Weiss for providing music for the show. And of course, thank you to you all for listening to Skippycast. <laughs>